got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. Welcome to The Plague, the podcast where we look not just at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but at the societal plagues, the plagues created by human socioeconomic systems that make the coronavirus more virulent and dangerous. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad, broadcasting from my shelter-in-place bunker. And every episode, we examine a different societal plague, a political or social pre-existing condition that, cross-indicated with the coronavirus, makes it deadlier than it could otherwise ever be. The coronavirus infects the human body, but what illnesses in our body politic make us more vulnerable? Economic inequality, environmental devastation, labor precarity, We pick a different social plague each week and talk with an expert about how that plague makes this pandemic worse and what we can do about it. What can you do as a society when you don't share the same reality? When you discuss things such as whether or not to stay inside during a pandemic and there are militias with guns insisting that everyone go back to work and that the malls and sporting events be reopened when science means something completely different and data means something completely different across political divisions. We're going to be looking today at the plague of the Orwellian denial of data, facts, and science, as well as other forms of domination, class domination, division, fear, And uh, our guest expert, we're very happy to have Michael Gene Sullivan on The Plague. Michael Gene Sullivan is an award-winning actor, writer, director, and activist based in San Francisco. His credits include work at the San Francisco Mime Troupe, American Conservatory Theater, Theater Works, California Shakespeare Theater, and many other theaters across the nation, plus theater festivals in Europe, the Middle East, Australia, and Asia. Michael is also resident playwright for the, despite its name, never ever silent, San Francisco Mime Troupe, where he has written or co-written over 25 plays, and he is resident playwright for the Playwrights Foundation, and was 2017 playwriting resident at the Jurassic Arts Center. His award-winning stage adaptation of George Orwell's 1984 has been translated into five languages and performed in 14 countries on five continents. And I want to say this is something me and Michael bond on quite a bit. His play, his version of 1984, is is absolutely haunting and fantastic. And I myself have written a full-length work about Orwell and his work. So we bonded quite a bit on this. Michael was a political blogger for Huffington Post and Progressive Army and has also emceed several political rallies as part of the resistance. This next song is Michael singing in the San Francisco Mime Troupe uh, play from 2007, Making a Killing. And in this song, he's an army colonel in charge of creating feel-good propaganda. I can see it now, my face on the TV, providing expert analysis of insurgent activity. Feel good story, baby. You know I believe. 
Michael, we are so happy to have you uh, here on The Plague, and I've been a fan of yours for many, many years and your work. Um, now, there's a specific plague that you have diagnosed for our society, and you were going to have a few prescriptions on how to treat it, and it's the Orwellian doublethink in our society, in our political system, the denial of objective truth or scientific fact. Uh, can you break that down a little bit and talk about how pernicious that is and what forms it takes? Well, in some ways, it started so long ago. I mean, we live in a society that has been uh, anti-intellectual. Really, I think since, I don't know, since the 30s, maybe before that, I mean, there was a period where people were very concerned about, like, evangelists in the Midwest or, or you know, ranting maniacs here or there. Uh, and then when, when uh, during the 30s, this idea of futurism became uh, these possibilities. What was the world going to look like in the future? But with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and a lot of scientists that had emigrated from uh, uh, Germany and from different places to the United States, and we we're going to be able to build this future based on technology and intellectualism and technocracy, that, fo- that old philosophy, all these different ideas. Mm-hmm. But uh, with World War II and with the Holocaust, I think people saw, oh, well, if you, there was, there was suddenly a distrust of experts. The idea that Mm -hmm. experts can take you down the wrong path, which is absolutely true. The people who say they have all the answers, say they have the numbers and the graphs and the statistics and all of these things, can come up with horrible, horrible uh, uh, ideas, horrible uh, plans, you know, in, in, you know, in, in the mm-hmm. Soviet Union. And can put them into reality, yeah, right. put them into practice. And so yeah. then, I, so I think this idea of, well, let's put our entire future into the hands of experts and scientists and, and uh, technocrats, we then are still living in a, uh, a reaction to that. We cannot trust these people at all. You know, it's all about common sense and it's all about, you know, the way we, that if I, if I can't see it and hold it, I don't believe in it kind of, you know, reaction. And so now we've ended up, ended up with a, uh, a president who embodies that idea that mm. every average American is an expert and their, their opinion is just as important as facts. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and you know, that I really appreciate the phrase I heard recently that you're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. Right. But apparently now, uh, if you are supporting the current administration, yeah, you, you I guess you feel entitled to your own facts. Right. Well, the idea is that these people can't be trusted. When a scientist says something, mm-hmm. if it doesn't make sense to you, that means it doesn't make sense at all. If it's something that you don't know, then it's something that doesn't exist. And so to trust them right. is kind, has become un-American. The idea that there are these people coming in and telling you things just because they got all that book learning, it is, it is ignorance like squared, you know? Mm-hmm. The idea that not only am I ignorant, but my, my ignorance is my strength. My ignorance is just right. as good as your intelligence. Very nice reference to one of the mottos of the party in 1984 there, by the way. Yes. Ignorance is strength. I appreciate that. No coincidence being the author of a great play adaptation of 1984. But here we are, uh, Michael. So now I wanted to sort of almost cross-index that with believing in some things that you can't see along the lines of faith. Like if I go to this church, I won't get covid 
Do you know what I mean? And I'm not trying to be cruel or make fun, but there's a, I don't believe in this invisible thing, for example, peer-reviewed climate science, right? But I do believe in this dogma of, of a certain religious type. Yeah. The, Is that fair to say? The idea of faith, that everything ends up being faith. I have a, a good friend and a reasonably intelligent person who we were having a discussion once, and he was talking about the failures of science over the, over the millennia and how it, how it just comes down to faith and that can you really say that faith in science is any stronger than faith in, you know, uh, uh, an invisible man in the sky who sees everything you do. And I said, mm-hmm. tell you what, I've never been skydiving, but let's go together. I'll k- take my scientifically designed parachute and you just jump out and pray. If, if you're not willing to do that, you can't say they're equal. Because when it's really a rubber meets the road thing. It's like when somebody is saying that you can't trust technology, but they're using technology to tell you that. And, and the, the key to faith is supposed to be it's, it's faith. It, it has no proof. It's faith. And it's separate from science, things that do have proof. And so you should be able to hold. That's not like holding. That's not like double think. You don't have to hold these two things in your mind at the same time. You just have to go, well, if I believe in the, say, the Christian God, for whatever reason one would do that, if you believe that, that does not mean that the earth is only a certain age or that, you know, uh, evolution isn't true. Those two things do not contradict. It contradicts Mm -hmm. because of the Bible, which was created by humans. So, you know, be, to be able to take all of that, and there, there are a vast number of Christians who believe in both things. I mean, they're like, this is faith, and yes. this is fact. They just aren't the outspoken ones. They are not the, uh, the loud ones. They are not out in the street protesting. You know, they're staying at home, you know. And there is a great progressive tradition in all, all the church, most of the churches, let's say. Yeah, I mean, so much of the science that we have now, we only have mm-hmm. because of medieval uh, uh, Muslim scientists and Arabic scientists and writers, point. you know. But all of these different movements that have become anti-science, anti-future, anti-anything uh, that's not written in a particular uh, religious text— uh, mm-hmm. And I think when people submit themselves to that and, and, and accept that, they then spread that to the rest of the wor- rest of their lives. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, and that's what sure. we're seeing now. Now, on the secular side of Orwellian, you know, rejection of of information or data, <laughs> um, do you see in sort of the more so many of them are faith based and many of them are, are not, but just a support of the policies of the administration or the behavior of the this administration itself, and as you point out, it's not just about this one. It goes way back. But there's an element of, I'm just going to believe him even though he changed what he says. He changes what he says from day to day, and I'll just believe the most recent thing that he said. And that's what reminds me of 1984 so drastically, even though I, I admit it's not the exact same thing. Yes, well, um, I think that the re- yeah. the reason I talk about religion is because uh, I feel like it is a fundamental way of thinking about things that mm-hmm. that is so faith based and not fact based. So there are things that I consider religions, like capitalism, is a religion. Mm-hmm. the The Wall Street is based on faith and consumer confidence. It's not based on 
uh, it's not a it's not a, a model that can sustain itself. You're basically robbing a bunch of people to give some of their some of their the money they earn to super rich people and giving the workers less than they actually the the value of their labor, which means they cannot be as good consumers. So it's a downward spiral, mm. you know, over a century or two. Uh, but it's based on sure. faith. The workers have to believe this makes sense. And the same thing with Donald Trump, who has now become a figure of faith, not really a political figure anymore. Because people are willing right. to, like you said, take something that he said on Tuesday, and then when he says something different on Wednesday, completely wipe Tuesday from their minds. We've seen that, and we've even seen the denial of uh, things that are observable facts. So it didn't rain on my uh, inauguration day, or we had the biggest crowds. And then that becomes faith or fact when those things are observable from aerial photographs, right? Yeah. When you, when you have that, that's, that is part mm-hmm. of, like I said, a, such an important part of different religions is that point where you're supposed to believe your, are you going to believe me or are you going to believe your lying eyes? And so, you know, <laughs> different things, different, and some, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, there are people, again, who will say, uh, those two things don't necessarily contradict. But when you have a, right. a sociopath and basically a brat, I mean, that's the thing. People use all these different words with, with Trump. He's never had to work for anyone, and he has never been contradicted mm-hmm. because he can just fire anybody who contradicts him until people, the people around him agree with him. So he has never had a sounding board, and he could say anything he wants and contradict mm-hmm. it. I've worked with people like this also in, in my personal life. People who just change from one thing to uh-huh. another, and they expect that you will... Uh, uh, just accept it because of the position that they're in, you know, even in theater. Right. Even so we even know it's a demonstration of power. Like it's not explicitly said by by you agreeing with what we both know with our own eyes is not true. Um, it, it supports me, but it also establishes that you will do what right. I say. It is a way of dominance. It, it's it is very mm-hmm. much the emperor's new clothes. You know, that's that mm. story is just a story of, you know, uh, political power and how I tell you this is the fact and this is the fact. And we see this in authoritarian governments throughout history where someone just says, I am a god. And people have to go, OK, you weren't a god yesterday. You know, yesterday you were right. a general or a president <laughs> or whoever, but now you're a god and we add you to the pantheon. OK, yes, yes. Uh, you know. But by the way, the tradition for Roman emperors was that they were near God status in their power, but they only became canonized as gods when they died. Yeah. So there was one, there was one Roman emperor who was on his deathbed. I forget which one, but he was a very practical guy. And as he was starting to fade, he just said to the people, you know, standing around him by his bed, I think I'm becoming a god. <laughs> and then he passed away. So at least he had a little bit of a sarcastic last yeah, words. Yeah, right. Know? Where it's like, we all know this is just the state religion, but here we go. Yeah. Um, but but in some ways, I think either Trump uh, believes it. I, I think he both believes the hype and at the core knows he's doing an Orwellian little thing. I don't know if he would use that I word, don't think he could pronounce I it. Think, yeah. Um. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I think that at least there's some awareness. There's a hollowness there that has to constantly be filled. Right? Yeah. Um, 
And then I guess his supporters are there to constantly fill it. Yes, he surrounded um, himself with people who, you know, it's that old, it's a thing that happens in every corporation. And people forget, I mean, not mm, you and I, but mm -hmm. the people who voted for mm -hmm. him, that he'd never held an elected position and he'd never had a boss. He had always been the right. boss. And so he, in those other, in all of his other business dealings, surrounded himself with yes men. And so right. the idea of the president, this is another thing that's very essential to the United States that people forget. The highest job in the United States is citizen. The president works mm -hmm. for us. And so he is a public mm -hmm. servant. But uh, a lot of people think right. of the president as their boss. They just want to be told mm -hmm. what to do rather than telling this person who's always on the news, telling them what to do. And so that sacrifice well, of our mm -hmm. enfranchisement is the greatest danger. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the patron, the, the patron who runs things. And this is why those relief checks have been delayed a few days, because he insisted that they be changed so that his name for the first time in history, the president's name is signed on the checks. Yeah. And there's always been there's always been a significant minority of Americans who poll after poll have said they'd be OK with having a king. And also along the lines of our of our plague of Orwellian, you know, d dismissal of of objective fact. Uh, we had we've always had far right movements. There's many different kinds of far right movements. I don't want to uh, overgeneralize, but of course there was literally the anti-immigrant nativist movement called the Know Nothings, right? And that was what they called themselves. They embraced the idea of as an anti-elitist banner, but um, perhaps actually serving a lot of the elites in the country unintentionally, un uh, but with an anti-elitist rhetoric and an anti-intellectual rhetoric, as you put it. Uh, the working class, a section of the working class being the foot soldiers, uh, unwittingly for the elite, mm -hmm. for an aristocracy or a, a corporate aristocracy, a proto-aristocracy in this country, has always been the case. All, there's always someone super powerful and super rich who will run out and tell the workers, I'm there for mm -hmm. you. I am going to be your, uh, uh, your guardian, your leader, your messiah. Mm -hmm. And the idea of that misinformation, the, the, the idea that for the workers in this country, the worst thing is the workers united. Mm -hmm. And is there anything more dangerous you know? than uh, autonomous, well-informed, critically thinking workers? <laughs> is there anything more yeah. dangerous? Uh, you know, I, I wrote, you're just making me think of this. When I lived in Chicago, I wrote a full-length play about the era of the Haymarket Square riot. Mm. And some Illinois Labor History Society folks got in touch with me, and I got to pay a visit to their office. And one of them showed me this amazingly beautiful made book. And it was by some folks, a, a workers' collective from the late 1800s, you know, the worst Victorian era time for workers. But they mm -hmm. were self-educating. They made their own books about this one in particular was called The History of Labor. And it literally went back to whatever people knew at that time of, of different kinds of labor going back to you know, prehistory to the extent that they could back then. And it was a beautiful book. And his point was, and this is, again, this is quite a while ago. So the guy showed it to me. I said, this is an amazing book. And he said, don't forget, people were working 10, 12, 14 hours a day in a miserable jobs. And then they would come home and do this. <laughs> mm. And then pass that book around. And that's autonomy. And that's anti-hegemony, right? And uh, I was right. fascinated. And then he made the point, you know, they didn't have cell phones. 
<laughs> and they didn't have TV. So <laughs> right, yeah. So they, they had some time on That's their hands. It. That's it. Really interesting. But, but also just that idea, that intellectualism. Uh, there's an old quote about, I don't know if it was Marx or not, how uh, philosophy comes out of leisure time. Mm. And, it, and it is very important for uh, uh, that, that rat race idea. Is that they can keep you working, keep you struggling with debt, keep you struggling and worrying about how are you going to feed yourself, how are you going to take care of your families. If you're always struggling and working, you never have leisure time. When you do have leisure what we think of as leisure, people get, oh, well, I got off work. So you go to the bar and you get drunk with your friends, which isn't really leisure. Mm. Um, but if you have time to sit around and, yeah, and it's one of the things that Orwell says in, in 1984, the idea that uh, if everybody has a refrigerator, doesn't have to worry about how they're going to feed themselves, doesn't have to worry about having a roof over their heads, they will become more intelligent mm. because they'll have all this free time and then they will become uh, uh, harder to manage. You know, they will then question their, they will question their circumstance. And so what we live in now is a situation where people are constantly told that you're supposed to fill all of your time with work. Mm -hmm. You are supposed to multitask. You are supposed to do three or four jobs at once. You're supposed to be part of the gig economy. If you are not a productive member of society uh, uh, in terms of working for someone else, then your self-esteem is supposed to be lessened. But that extra time, that extra leisure time, that what should not be luxury of sitting around and examining your circumstance and the circumstances of your friends and coming up with a theory about why we live the way we mm -hmm. live mm -hmm. is so dangerous yeah. that it has to be stamped right. out. Or distracted. Here, just here. Here's a lot of yeah. shiny toys as well. Right, here's another movie station, and here's, I mean, and it's not that all of these things, you know, having Netflix and all of that stuff, eh, it's mm -hmm. fine. That's entertainment, mm -hmm. but it should not be desperate entertainment. Like, oh my God, I've got to get away from work. I've got to have a, a, a fantasy uh, uh, escape. Yeah. In between fantasy escape and the drudgery of working so that your boss can have another yacht, <laughs> there needs to be space. Isn't there something between those two things? <laughs> Can't we have? It's not yeah. so much. Well, in, yeah, in fact, right. in the movement back then, in the Victorian you know, times that led to the Haymarket, um, you know, some folks were like, gee, this demand for an eight-hour day is a little reformist. It's not quite radical enough. And they, some of them were rejectionist. It, was, it wasn't enough to just ask for an eight-hour workday. And other progressives made the point, actually, if we can just, it's not the end of the struggle, but if we can get an eight-hour workday, then we can have enough time to be human and have a human consciousness and life. So it is a radical gesture yeah. on the way to more fundamental improvements. It's not just an empty reform. And I think your analysis really pairs up with that. Like to have the option of actually doing some higher functioning critical thinking, uh, first of all, arms us against authoritarians and enables us to be mm -hmm. a little more inoculated. In other words, we, hey, when somebody says something that's measurable nonsense, if I've been just practicing in a daily life, just like my Pilates folks, if I've been doing, you know, mental Pilates, <laughs> then when somebody says something and it's measurably untrue, I can actually exercise that little muscle and go, well, now let me just try to figure out why they're lying. Yeah. Yeah. What is what's the motivation yeah. here? It's, uh, I've had, you know, since my wife and I have been together for you know, mm -hmm. decades, we have political conversations all the time. And every mm -hmm. once in a while, somebody will ask me, well, oh, well, you know, what, what uh, how have you guys been together so long? And it's like, and there's lots of different reasons. 
But I also tell people those things where they say, you know, on your first date, you should never talk about money, religion, or politics. You have to talk hmm. about all three right away. <laughs> you know, right. you want to make sure that you're not going to be stuck with someone who, you know, you fall in love with someone who you disagree with. That You find out, oh, my God, they're, a, you know, a Nazi or something. You want to talk <laughs> about politics because it is the ever-changing thing. You know, and you right. talk about money because right. if when the working class stops talking about money, that means we're not talking about income. We're not sharing how much we make compared to someone else. I, I don't know if right. you remember a few years ago that became a big issue in Hollywood where women started mm-hmm. talking about yes. how much money they were making. And the men were like, I'm making so much more than this. And so there's right. this movement to just constantly say how much you're being paid. So we see and understand the inequities. You know, yeah. but but control of that information is a great form. It's an element of thought control in a sense, because if you don't have the information to think about, <laughs> then you can't think about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in theater, mm-hmm. it comes up with theaters that don't really want to publish how much they pay because mm-hmm. they're worried that if somebody else pays more, that the actors will then go, well, can I get a little more money? You know, if you know right. what everybody's right. making, then it's just information and it's not secrets bizarre people are like oh my goodness i don't want everybody in my business well you know who's in your business your boss your boss knows all of this <laughs> but you don't want your fellow workers in your business that's just uh right. you know counter-revolutionary and divide and conquer classic yeah so now um we're faced with the situation we've, we've kind of broken it down like this is why it matters uh that we have this problem of an acceptance by a large swath of the population that uh, if there is an objective truth of some kind, or or just even I, I want to get away from objective truth, I suppose that might be too totalizing, but just that uh, that measurable facts and peer reviewed science and literally the memory of what happened yesterday don't matter. It's about my faith in the leader and my willingness to switch positions and pick and choose from you know realities as I as I as I please. Um, maybe we could take a, a quick break and come back and think about what are some treatments for this disease because it is quite pernicious. You, 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 you got the play. So, Michael, we're realizing that this uh, Orwellian. Uh, rejection of of just even everyday observable reality uh, has hamstrung our abilities to organize, right? And um, then they enable someone who's an authoritarian to maintain uh, uh, power and increase it. Um, We should also talk a bit about how that affects dealing with COVID since that's part of the plot of our podcast. But I think we've kind of made it clear if, if you believe the leader, even when he's has policies that make more people sick, uh, or if you have a faith in things that enable you to just spread the pandemic, clearly we have a problem. They're, they're interlaced. What are some things that you would advocate to, to help at least treat uh, this plague? Well, I think the, the, at the heart, even of 1984 and of uh, modern life, I, I personally feel that what is the heart of it is fear. That we are in a world that we are constantly in fear. Uh, And some of those fears are so existential, like uh, climate change. Uh, Things that would require people to make huge changes in their lives. 
that instead of facing those fears and seeing what they can personally do to perhaps mitigate the 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 uh, the experience and and change the results of those things, you know, institutionalized racism, all of these things that are so huge, it's easier for people to build just go, it's COVID nineteen, or it's China, mm-hmm. or it's immigrants to to try, to mm-hmm. to to take the anxiety that they feel, which is kind of an unfocused fear, uh, as far as I know, mm-hmm. and then focus it on something that they can blame. It's black people. It's gays. Uh, And what you want to do is be able to step back and look at the things that are these huge, uh, like I said, perhaps existential threats and to grapple with them to say, what is it that I can do as opposed Mm -hmm. to having this anxiety? I mean, this is how Big Brother stays in power in 1984 is by keeping everybody afraid all the time. The war has to be never-ending. This really started in the United States with the Cold War. I mean, not started. There's always been something that was a threat to the United States. And starting in the after the, uh, uh, the revolution in the Soviet Union, it was communism and Bolshevism. But it never really reached a, a, a peak in terms of everybody, you know, kind of condemning these things until... The Cold War happens, and everyone is told that they could die at any moment, which is a horrible thing to have to live with. To be able to accept, to get up every day, to go to work, to have children, to invest in their futures, but know that at any moment you could be obliterated by a bomb, and that's what your government is telling you. And your children are growing up with this constant fear. They go to school, they play, and then they do air raid drills. You know, we have yes. generations of yes. people who have grown up having to know on some level that on any moment they could die, uh, you know, right. obviously. And you see posters and movies uh-huh. about it. Uh, and so that f- uh, right. right. And it's such a, a, a massive fear. And people are told that there's nothing you can do about this. Of course, you couldn't like elect different leaders. You couldn't, you know, reach out to your enemy and try to uh, undermine uh, mutually assured destruction. Instead. Mm-hmm. We're told that the real problem is your neighbor, because that's something you can psychologically uh, uh, place. He's right there. Well, it's a kind of uh, it's a displaced objection. I'm objected. I'm put down. Right. And I'm going to displace that onto these folks over here, because those are folks I can get. at. Right. It's kind of I can't get at this problem. It's almost like the, uh, you know, uh, uh, guy's looking for his keys where the streetlight is. And he says, I'm looking for my keys. And somebody says, where you drop me says, well, down the block. And he says, well, why are you looking here? And he says, the light is better here. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like that. The darkness is all of these other fears. And so people focus right here on the part that they can see. And we are being pushed towards that constantly. We're constantly told that every time climate change comes up, it's like, no, 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 no. You need to worry about immigrants, you know. Right, uh, right. So we need, I think, to to understand, see how we're being manipulated through fear and to be mm-hmm. able to kind of let it wash over us and go, OK, there are other things that are more important that I should be afraid of, but I can take an action about. To find those right. actionable things gives you, helps you overcome the fear of it, the understanding of it, and helps you overcome the big brotherness and how we're being manipulated. We need a greater field of vision. 
Yeah. If I'm only focusing on what I'm being told to focus on, which is brightly illuminated by the major media because they are that's they're shining the street light. <laughs> they're pointing it, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm only looking for my keys where they're pointing the light. We need to build our own lights and shine them where they need to be shown. Right. Be that alter, alternative media, uh, alternative arts that are informative, right? Mm-hmm. Such as what what I know you create. <laughs> um and perhaps to have a greater sense of solidarity. Um, yeah. One of the perhaps treatments to fear is knowing that you're not in it alone. Yes. And that's a... We are in a bad moment. And that's a, <laughs> We're in a bad moment, <laughs> but we're not alone. <laughs> and that's, you know, I think the idea, again, of having the leisure time. If you're not mm-hmm. afraid of, of losing your job right now, knowing that that... Mm. Or losing your health care. Those are things to be concerned mm. about. But if you let the the fears that are pushed upon you eat up all of the other time you have. You can't say, well, wait a minute. You may not have time to go, wait, if we all had national health care, then, and my health care followed me wherever I went, my boss can't use health care as a, as a bargaining chip, which is what it is now. You can't quit this yes. job no matter how bad I treat you. You cannot quit this job because you'll lose your health care. And people cower right. about that. But if we had health care, national health care, suddenly that fear would be gone and our bosses would, uh, the employers rather, <laughs> would, have to, uh, mm-hmm. would have to negotiate with us. They would have to have other things. We'd have to pay you more, you know. But as long as we right. stay well, afraid and not talk to each other about those fears, we are letting them stay in control. It's no good to have a feudal relationship with your employer. It's always a, a certain power dynamic, but when it becomes like a feudal uh, patron, right? Uh, there's just too much leverage. Mm-hmm. I was talking to someone yeah. about the idea of, uh, uh, I, you know, I, when I was uh, working at a, a general auditions in the Bay Area, and I'm watching to cast mm-hmm. people, but I was also telling the actors, mm-hmm. it's really important to remember that when you are auditioning for a theater, they are auditioning for you. That's if great. they treat you badly, mm-hmm. you don't want to work for that kind of asshole. You know? And that, right. that's for everybody right. who's a worker to be able to say, they're auditioning for me. They're, this is a two-way street. They're not giving me a job. We are, it's an exchange of labor for money. There's no gift mm-hmm. involved. But as long as just even in the language, if we use that term, they gave me a job, they, that that person, you know, uh, let me do well, this. What's the best Orwellian turn of phrase? Now, the, I have noticed the GOP is great with their turns of phrase, aren't yeah. they? And the phrase job creator, first of all, evokes the Old Testament creator. Yeah. Amazing. But, you know, just the ideology of, um, you know, the, the power of one's labor and creativity helps to create the job. You know, the worker is part of the equation of the job. Yeah. I was one of the things that I think it was Elizabeth Warren a few years ago mm. uh, said something about somebody was like, well, I, you know, I built this factory out of nothing. And she was like, you didn't mm. build that factory. Workers built that factory and workers worked in that factory. You funded it. Mm. You as a capitalist put up the money to hire people, but you didn't build it. And we think of that. You know, I had a, I think this is great. I had a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon before uh, my current job. And uh, <laughs> one of my students was like, I know Carnegie has an ugly history, but he did build this school. 
And it gave me the opportunity along these lines to say, well, Carnegie put in the money that he got from these other things. But other people actually built the school. And I know it's a turn of phrase in a way, but uh, But no, other people built the school. But that, (laughs) yeah, that's the Orwellian, Mm -hmm. the newspeak part of it. Mm -hmm. The idea that this person Mm -hmm. built it and they didn't. They financed it. And if you think of that, Mm -hmm. it's like it's like when I talk to people and tell them they're not capitalists. And they're always like, well, of course I am. And I'm like, no, well, they, but I work for a living. That makes you a worker. Capitalists live right. off their money, off of their capital. Everybody else yeah, is yeah. a worker. But people don't, they see worker. And this is a, a, another big, uh, uh, you know, the, how pe- they've got into our minds. The idea that admitting people are in the working class, they'll say, I'm, in the, I'm not in the working class, I'm in the middle class. And middle class is just a worker mm-hmm. with a mortgage. That's it. It doesn't <laughs> actually have a definition. It is just a, right. uh, basically a worker who identifies with their boss rather than with their fellow right. workers. But by right. stipping... You're more comfortable, but you're not living off your dividends. Right. Let's put it that way. And, and it, yeah. middle class was a term that was invented. In, you know, you don't hear about people in the 20s or 30s being middle class. It was invented mm-hmm. after the war as a way to, sep- to divide the working class. And so many people have accepted it now, that new language, that you can be talking to a garbage man or a, or a, a barista or somebody who is really working with their hands, and they will not accept mm-hmm. or admit that they're in the working class. They'll say, nope, I'm middle class. Right. I think it's interesting that, you know, as, as when we're acting, when you're acting, there's this idea of specificity. We want emotional specificity from your acting, a really, like, crafted and specific emotional range you know you're not just generally angry you're angry in a specific way that fits this detailed moment in the script right and i feel that what we're getting at here is specificity in language uh yeah if you're using these terms willy-nilly it's it's destructive or it's certainly confusing and of course one thing orwell as we both are big fans pointed out in politics in the english language is Accuracy and clarity and specificity in language is a great antidote to doublethink or propaganda, um, or at least calling it out when someone's not being specific. Right? Yeah, the, the generality that are used by politicians and by corporate leaders uh, uh, allows them all of this, this wiggle room uh, that just makes, it's almost like it's a combination of what's called the thwack factor, you know? Oh, you're interested in this? Well, you've asked for the answers, and they put down, they thwack. It's like a stack of papers, you know, three feet tall, saying, well, look through that. I'm clear somewhere in there. And they know you're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, Right. So there's the thwack factor on this side, and then there's the, well, let me summarize it for you on the other side. And they just say Uh some bullshit. Uh, right. Well, um, Attorney General Barr yes. did some summarizing a while ago that was actually just lying. I was like, oh, that's a new Orwellian euphemism. Summarizing just means yeah. deceiving. Oh, that's great. Right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's someone just telling yeah. you, I'm telling you the truth without telling the <laughs> truth. You know. And look at me. I'm saying it with a straight face because I'm shameless. Right. So that makes it true. Right. Okay. You, you, you. You've got the play. You've got, you've got the play. Now, what's the role of the arts in this kind of movement against this? What do you see in the arts, both in your own work that you're you're particularly glad about and 
and or others that you feel does some of this work we're getting at culturally? Well, I think part of it is having, I mean, there's so many aspects to theater. Uh, one is the community it creates. The audience is a community of like-minded people. Mm-hmm. So in a world where it's easy to think that you're the only one who thinks this. I always thought one of the greatest propaganda moments was when Ronald Reagan said, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Most people were worse off. But by hearing that at home, isolated, people thought, well, if I'm worse off, it must just be me. The president would never say that if it was most people. I'm the loser. Mm -hmm. He's not the liar. Whereas when you go to see a play... You, are, you have a question about society, about racism, sexism, uh, abuse in some way or other, capitalism, foreign affairs, and you, are, you have chosen to go to see this play, and everyone around you chose that too. So you are automatically uh, in a community of like-minded people with looking for answers or an analysis of the same question. And in that way, yes. that idea of... These people, it's not just about the performer and about the play. It's about them. Even if the play isn't perfect in some ways, or the performances aren't right, or it's under-rehearsed or whatever, the audience knows that they can turn to the person next to them and talk about the subject matter. Yes. And and yes. be... And, and there's... Michael, there's even that moment where we all laugh at the same political joke. Yeah. Or many of us. So, you know, you're up on stage, you're satirizing a corporate figure or an authoritarian figure, and there's a certain turn of phrase or a funny quip. And then we all laugh. And it's like, ah, we all get the references together. And I heard it. I heard proof of it. Yeah. Because we all, you know what I mean? Like if I was home alone watching on a Netflix, that's great. Um, Or with three people. But when there's like a few hundred people, it's like, oh, we are in the same world yes. and we have the same information and when Michael tells that joke we all get it together actively and uh, I think there's something nice about yeah, that yeah it encourages people in their own uh, in their own thoughts in their own analysis of things to go yes yeah, so somebody says something and we we uh, make some ironic point on stage that is this you know showing the hypocrisy of the circumstance and everyone goes got it and then when you go home right. and you and, look at other things and you go, oh, that's what this is and that's what this is and that's what this is and I'm not the crazy one. Right. You know? And, you know, along those lines, Brecht made the point, uh, I'm going to pa- terribly paraphrase, but Brecht was like, I don't want just a stock pot of human emotions on the stage and we're all univer- universalizing. We're all supposed to just identify with the king yeah. and root for him or, or the prince. He's like, I don't mind if the audience is divided. Like, let's say half the audience has one ideology and a third has another and a sixth has another. So maybe these folks laugh because they like that satirical joke. And maybe these folks are a little uncomfortable. And then they can have a little debate about it during intermission, getting their yeah. you know, coffee. And Brecht was like, I'm good with that because I'm not trying to mush us all together. I actually want us to hash this out. And uh, well, making we them do have differences. Think. Making the audience, mm-hmm. putting the audience in a position where it's okay to think, you mm-hmm. know, and it's okay. I mean, with theater, you're using emotions uh, for the humanity of right. the situation. But a lot of things don't yeah. go beyond that. And political theater goes beyond that and says, yes, these are emotional. You're going to have emotional reactions and the characters are having emotional reactions because they're human beings. But yes. the, the, the theme is of, the, of an intellectual life. You know, what I always think of my plays, the plays that I write are basically all 
based on one scene from modern times. Huh. <laughs> when Chaplin is dropped into the machine. Because <laughs> my, my idea is that, I mean, I have, to, I have so many theories about pretty much everything in life, but, and a bunch of them about writing. Mm-hmm. But one of the ones I have about uh, is that, you know, basically the play is there's a human being and then there's the machine that is the society, whether it's a family, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a town, whatever it is. And that human being is dropped into the gears of the machine, and they have a choice. Mm-hmm. They can rebel against it and try to break the machine. They can try to find a way to conform to the machine so that they can work with it. Or they can just become a gear. Right. And that's what we are all right. normally being, being pushed to just be quiet gears. Not to still be a human mm-hmm. being, even still working with the machine. Just be a gear and shut up. And so mm-hmm. trying to show each one of these circumstances of what's the expectation and how it is. And, and sometimes people feel they have to be a gear to save their family. Or, you know, I can't say anything because I'll lose everything that I have. Or they've been beaten down emotionally and intellectually in their family of origin or whatever. But how does the audience respond mm-hmm. to that circumstance? How would they, re- how would they act? Really, we're only going to get through this with collective action. Yeah. And so here we are as a collectivity, as an audience, and we're realizing, oh, a lot of us have the same problem. And the the theater project is helping us to come to that. And, uh, you know, as you've mentioned, there's different levels of privilege within the working, working class. And the lower you are, the more you need collective action to deal with your problems. Arguably, we all do to get through these disasters. Um, So to have that idea that we are in this together, and I would argue too, and I do get this from your work, Michael, is that it's a way to show, actually, there are things we can do about it. Because I feel that um, defeatism and nihilism are passive allies of fascism. Oh, yeah. You know? And when you see a, a show, or of course, read an essay, look, experience any form of art or, or you know, work, um, that also that says, this is a problem, and here's some things we can do about it. I think that's a lever where all of a sudden, oh, I was really going to cop out and just be defeatist, but darn it. <laughs> now you're showing me that that's a choice, not, not a natural default setting. And that's always been a big part of Mime Troop shows is... And and Mm -hmm. different levels is the indictment of the audience. People think, oh, Mm. well, you're doing political theater. The idea, especially comedy, the idea is to make the audience laugh and to make them feel good about themselves and just give them. And it's Mm. like, no, I always want to, uh, what I tell people in their uh, other Mind Trip members, like, I want to hurt the audience. I want to make them feel good about, you know, some things. I want to entertain them, but I want them to feel bad. I want them to feel Mm. like there was something that could have been done, you know, mm-hmm. where where right. that that the world oh and the revolution can never end on the stage, you know right. that's a that's right. a really There's important no cath- thing because that's catharsis, right? I don't want no catharsis. Like oh, that was great. It, there should be a little unsettling, right? I never right? want them to get to mm-hmm. yeah, this is a happy ending. You know, the happy ending is at best when people realize, the characters realize that there's something that must be done. They finally go through their revolutionary epiphany and they go, there are things we could do, even if that thing is just me seeing things differently, but there are other acts that I can do. There, no matter what the circumstances, there's something you can do. And sometimes I've like, uh, I've killed characters on stage, lead characters. You know, one of my Mm -hmm. favorite moments was 
in a show, Freedom Land, which I really liked Freedom Land. And it was about police mm-hmm. brutality and the war on drugs and, and uh, immigration. Yeah. It had all of these things in it. Absolutely. And at the end, the characters, the grandfather and grandson, who the audience have been following their story, and they finally get to a point where they finally realize that they can work together cross-generationally. Their love for each other and the revolution is more important than any differences that they have. And at that moment, the police come in on a on a they've they've kicked in the wrong door believing these guys are criminals and they end up in a fight and the two leads get shot and killed and this is at the end of the show and Mm -hmm. when it happened when we opened because the audience had just cheered when the grandfather and grandson hug each other and finally say i love you too that's when the cops come in and they get killed and the audience was dead silent except for one guy in the audience who screamed no <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's what I wanted. Right. I wanted them to feel like, oh, well, the re- everything's worked out. No. And then, I mean, we had it so that the characters got up and the next, the final song of the show was just singing at the audience. Not to each right. other. They're singing right, right to the audience. And they were saying, look, the song was, how can you live? And it was, how can you live in a world like this? This is how it really is. Yes, this is a yes. musical comedy, but people get killed like this every day. And you accept it. You, the audience, accept mm-hmm. this. And right. so... Well, you basically had like a reverse deus ex machina where in the Greek tragedies, yes. you know, Zeus would come down on a thing and fix everything. You said, no, no, that's not what we're doing here. Yeah, it is very... Y'all have to fix everything. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's like uh, frequently at the end of my shows, I have somebody will come in just when everyone's like, hey, we're going to do this. And it's like, it's not that easy. And it mm-hmm. can't be solved on stage. It is up to you right. guys. And so... Uh, In fact, I think it's the good person of Szechuan is the Breck play mm, where yeah. he, sarcastic, he sarcastically does it. Like these kind of doddering old bureaucratic gods come down on a deus ex machina thing and they kind of fix everything. But, you know, it's just sarcastic. Yeah. Like, yeah. At the end like, of that show. Actually, that's... Because <laughs> uh, Shente mm-hmm. is still like, but this doesn't solve my problems. You know, they're like going, they're good. Well, we love you, good person of Szechuan. And she's like, no, I need help. (laughs) So, uh, yes. So then we're left to say, hey, wait a minute. I've been I've been entertained because, you know, as as you all do in the Mime Troupe, um, you know, we do. You know, the price of getting us of earning that moment is absolutely the work is great. The art, the music, you know, the elements are all there. And then that gives you a position in which to twist it, you know, and give us that uh, critical reflection. Yeah. Uh, So it's uh, it's always I mean, some years, well, I as the writer will get, you know, a little pushback. People say we really everybody's so depressed. We need a happy ending this year. And mm. I've I've actually only done that once. And I regretted it so much. And I regretted it so much that at the very end of the show. I made, there were like four stories going on, and I made three of them un- had unhappy endings, and one of them had a happy ending. And it was the main story. Mm. And, I, and I was like, I didn't want to do it. But somebody kept saying, the audience is really depressed. And then after the show opened, and people were like, why did you stick that on, that happy ending on? And then the person who said that to me was like, oh, I didn't mean it that way. And I was like, oh, God. Uh-oh. See, that's the thing, is working. Wait a minute. Yeah. And so then I, I uh, you know, I, we changed it, like, by the second week, I changed it to something else, which made more sense. Right. But the reviews had already gone out and stuff where they were like, why this? So 
that's yeah. that's made me it's, more like it's tricky. Yeah, but I mean, I'm writing. I'm a I'm a I, I'm in a collective, and I'm writing as a commissioned writer, basically. I'm not just sure. giving them a finished play. I'm doing everything I can to write, and but with a lot of feedback from collective members, and I have to represent the company, not just me. Right. The shows I write outside. You know, like sure. like which can be actually much harsher, like 1984, or I've got mm-hmm. like historical dramas and and farces, and they're they're all very political. But this is just the way I would do it. Well, I think it's interesting to have both tracks in your career, right? That collective process and everything you gain from collectivity, yeah. and then also on on this track, you can just write your own, you know, uh, uh, as you completely as you wish. So yeah, well. Michael, I, I really was glad to hear more about your creative process and to see how this fits together, you know, that these, this is the way that your writing is an attempt to inoculate us against um, what a great Princeton professor uh, published a book called On Bullshit. Yes, I have that <laughs> so, book, actually. And he, you know the book. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And, and for, for the audience, just Google this. It's a, he's, a, he's a very uh, senior uh, Princeton professor book came out a while ago but he just makes the distinction between bullshit and lying and he says well bullshit doesn't even have any relationship to the truth at least a liar knows they're lying and they know what the truth is and a bullshitter such as some of the folks we're dealing with now just say whatever they need to say in any moment and change it and it has no relationship to the truth and um i think that a lot of your creative and theatrical work helps to serve as an inoculant you know as a as a little bit of a vaccine well, i hope against so. the bullshit <laughs> Uh, and um, I thank you so much for being on the plague. And um, I hope maybe we'll have you back again. And, and I and I I'm know home. you're going to share with us. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, listen. Um, I hope that you won't be stuck at home for much longer because I don't live very far from you. If if you get to go outside, I get to go outside. But uh, thank you so much and uh, for being on the plague. And uh, we'll all be watching your show. I hope this summer we'll be able to watch more of the mime. Trip. I hope so. Thank you very much for having me. Michael was kind enough to share with us a song for us to close out on, a song he sang on with the Mime Troupe in a play called Seeing Double in 1989, when there was more hope for peace in the Middle East and an equitable peace. And the song may have some relevance to us now about groups with seemingly irreconcilable differences finding a way to survive together. Stop the downward slide 
drop the guns and take the hand that's reaching out from the other side. You can hear the clock is ticking. You can see there's not much time. There is no God in the Holy Land, just people screaming, Listening to the Plague Podcast. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad. And for more information on my books and performance work, you can go to lmbogad.com. Sound design and music by Jason Montero and my other friend named Jay. <laughs>